well, I am, uh, I, I'm very thankful to be uh, with you guys today to get to open the Word together. Uh, I'm going to milk this one for as long as I can. This is my second sermon here, so be easy on an on a old-looking young guy like me. Um, I, and if you don't know me, my name's Troy Cash. I, I'm an intern here, and uh, I, I, I get the privilege of helping typically with music. Um, but we get, to, we get to open the scriptures together today, and um, that, that script, they tell us that his word is profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction in training for righteousness. And uh, that's my prayer, uh, that the Lord would, would be kind enough to, to train us all up in righteousness together, as we heard from Ephesians 4 this morning. Um, and so looking forward to that, let's, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. We are in Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to be reading verses 21 through 31. Hear the word of God. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked by the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is true, right, and good. We thank you for the Savior that you is presented to us in it. We pray that you would give us eyes to see him today, ears to hear him, and, and help us, Lord, Holy Spirit, to read it in faith. We pray this in Christ our Savior's name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, so the first thing I want to ask you is uh, to think about a time when uh, is a particular memorable moment in your life. And in, in particular, think about a moment that was memorable where you learned something new, whether about yourself or about the world, or about the, your place in the world. Uh, and I want to ask, what was, it what was it that made this uh, learning experience memorable? Why did it stick? Like if, if, this, is, if this is something that uh, you, you remember definitively learning, and it, it was a memorable time, why was it memorable? Why did it stick? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that uh, we don't probably immediately think of a time in a, a lecture or a classroom. While there's nothing wrong, I'm not knocking lectures, 
not knocking classrooms, high school students, middle, middle school students would know. I'm a, I'm a big fan of lectures. They get those every week. Um, but we just typically wouldn't define these as uh, life-changing, life-defining moments that we learn from, right? However, you very well may be thinking of an experience, a life-defining moment, let's say, where you actually experience the truthfulness of something firsthand. Uh, take, for instance, let's say if we have any medical students in the room or, or medical associates or graduates or retirees, there's, a, there's a, quite a difference in uh, when you're training for, let's say, a life-saving, life-intervening technique, and then the first time you actually practice said technique, right? You're going to learn something about yourself. You're going to learn something about the world. And I guarantee you that the experience, rather than the classroom setting, is actually going to stick with you a whole lot longer. So we've actually learned a lot about the way that Jesus teaches in the book of Matthew. We've been seeing uh, different ways that he teaches. He actually makes use of lecture-style teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He actually makes use of story-like teaching with the parables several chapters back. And now, he also uses a form of teaching that wise teachers often do, where he uses a situation in which the outcome learned is actually much stronger than it otherwise would have been, because he, he makes the student, if you will, uh, experience this truth firsthand. You can think back to chapter 14 that we were in just recently where we read the disciples came to a fearful confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, it's something that we would say that they were, that was, that was caught rather than explicitly taught, right? To use that phrase. If Jesus had just explained to them that he had the power to control the wind and the waves, could they have come to this knowledge? Well, sure, we could say absolutely. Uh, they, they could have possibly had some mental assent to this truth. But we can also say that it's quite likely the story wouldn't have ended the same way as we read it does with a fearful, worshipful confession that surely this is the Son of God. And so they had an experience that likely they were never going to forget where they learned the truth and that's actually the kind of te teaching that we have in our text here, these 10 verses today. We've come out of a, a section of Scripture where uh, Jesus has just proclaimed to the people, teachers and hearers alike, uh, that in opposition to the, the long-held rabbinical tradition of his day, that it isn't what goes into the body that defiles a person. It's not what a person eats that defiles them, but actually it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles. In other words, a man or a woman is not made unclean by what he or she eats. Rather, one proves that he is unclean by the words that he uses or the actions that she takes. These things, Jesus tells us in that passage, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are the things that prove a person is unfit or unclean in the sight of God. And so it's no coincidence then 
the first place that we see Jesus withdrawing to from that situation is the most unclean territory with the most unclean people that Jewish regulation can think up. Verse 21 here, it says, Jesus went away from there, this previous place, to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And if you look at a map of all the travels of Jesus during his ministry, this is the northernmost point of his travels. This is about 30 miles outside of his previous uh, scene where he speaks to the Pharisees and the scribes. And it is well into the predominant Gentile territory. It is not along his uh, convenient route of travel. It's a very intentional direction to go. And to add insult to injury, not only is this Gentile territory, Matthew tells us that the woman they meet there is not only an unclean Gentile, she's a Canaanite. It's the only place in all of the New Testament that a Canaanite is mentioned. And so when there's something that unique that pops up in Scripture, our antennas have to go up. We've got to ask why something's going on here. This is important. And we have to ask the question, why? Why does it matter that this woman is a Canaanite? Matthew makes the point to tell us that. You'll remember that the Canaanites take up a significant portion of the Old Testament and a significant role in the history of the nation of Israel. And not favorably. <laughs> they, these were the, the people that Israel was supposed to take over and drive out as they crossed into the promised land of Canaan under Joshua. And so without necessarily going into a deep dive of the, the conquest of Canaan. What we need, to, we need to know two things um, that helps us to understand the context of our text better is, that at, number one, at the time of the conquest of the land of Canaan, the land was overtaken and ripe with iniquity. These things, religious prostitution, child sacrifice, Serpent worship. These were all common practices in their religious ceremonies. And so it's no stretch to say at all that this was an unclean land with an unclean people. This was their history. And the second thing is that Canaan was the promised land to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. And importantly, the nation in which his heir David and the heir of David would eventually rule with, with righteousness. So that's the backdrop of this context of this Canaanite woman. And there's no doubt then a purpose which Matthew places this story here. The disciples are about to see in real time what makes a person clean. Not only that, but this woman and the crowds afterwards are about to learn in a way that they could not have otherwise about the mercy of the God of Israel and about the king, the character of the king, the nature of the king, of the one whom he has appointed to rule over this nation. And so I want to look at these things uh, that Jesus commends in this woman as great faith. And we need to think in this way. What are the things that prove her cleanliness? We've heard the list, as I just mentioned, of un what proves uncleanliness. So we need to think, what are the things that prove her cleanliness? We're not just told, but we're shown. And we might say, as it's written in your bulletin, analogously, what is the genetic makeup of her faith? 
the first thing I want us to look at is the tone of her faith. The tone. In verse 22, it says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Now we read this here, and it seems as if it's a, it's a momentary cry. It's a singular moment that she comes to Jesus and is crying out to him. But the, the term was crying that we have translated here for us actually carries the weight that this is a perpetual cry. It is over and over and over and over. Hence the aggravation that we see from the disciples later on in the text. They're aggravated with her and they want her out of there. She is persistent in her cry to the Lord. As crass as we can be, she's, this is a woman who is a beggar on the side of the road whom everybody looks down at. She is unclean, and she has a persistent need and, and will not give up until her needs are met. And what is it that, that she cries out to Jesus? These first words that she says, Have mercy on me. The first thing she says is not a claim of position or status, obviously because she has none. It's no excuse for the condition that she's in or the condition that her daughter's in because at this point, it doesn't matter. The only plea that she finds that she's able to actually muster to Jesus is have mercy over and over and over we're told that her daughter is enslaved to demonic activity. Mark in his gospel actually tells us that she was a little daughter with an unclean spirit. And so this woman from an unclean heritage living in an unclean land has a little girl at home who's suffering from the activity of an unclean spirit. And the moment that she hears that Jesus is even remotely near her village, her home, her town, and she seeks to run out to him and is compelled to cry out for him with nothing other than have mercy. So as we look today at these things that Jesus commends in this woman as great faith, we need to consider what is the overwhelming tone and the overwhelming position that she takes. And it's a one of continual pleading for mercy. So we ask ourselves, is this the tone of your fellowship with the Lord. If we seek to be commended by the Lord Jesus as having great faith, is this the tone of your fellowship with Him? Now, we, we definitely sing it here on the Lord's Day. We confess it often. We often, in our prayers, say, Lord, have mercy. Hear our prayers. But I, I want to ask you, in the, in the busy moments of your day, when you utter a prayer under your breath or you're moving from one thing to the next, is this the tone of your prayer? Does the Lord hear this refrain from you? Have mercy over and over and over. If not, we have to ask ourselves, why? What, what is the difference between this woman and myself if this is not what the Lord is hearing from me regularly in my prayer? And I think that the answer to that question is that this woman was keenly aware of her desperation. And we often aren't. There, there are many things for us to hide behind, whereas this woman had none. We, we, can, we can have things, whether it be 
success in business or social status or even if our families are granted the appearance of godliness, things that can prop ourselves up to kind of look clean on the outside that actually drive a dividing wall between us and a holy God. What they actually serve to do is to keep us from seeing things the way that they truly are, which is that we are sinners, unclean sinners, in the sight of a perfect and, and holy God. And so I ask you, what is the tone of your faith? What happens when we, we don't see that we stand in the sight of a holy God, and most importantly, that we don't position ourselves to see the King of mercy who extends forgiveness to those who kneel at his feet and cry continually, Lord, have mercy. So I, I wonder that if we were to embrace this desperate condition as having no hope apart from the work of Christ, how clearly would the Lord display himself? Because as we understand it from this text, Jesus uses this woman's desperate condition to bring an awareness to a desperate state. And the object of her deliverance actually becomes clearest in her moments of despair. So the next thing we need to see, what is the object of this woman's faith? We look at verse 22 again. This is the title she gives to him. Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. How could this be? How does she know him to be the Lord, the Son of David? She's never actually met the man before. This, this is the title that she's attributing to him. Lord, meaning master. Son of David, meaning the one whom is promised to rule on the throne of David over the people of Israel. How could this be? The reformer John Calvin actually notes on this passage that it has to be that she's actually heard the verse, the voice of Christ speaking to her before. Now, testimony of, of his works has surely reached her village. Jesus has gained in popularity. And these are wonder, wondrous, miraculous works. And she probably knows the history of her people, the Canaanites. And she has heard the testimony of the one who will come and reign righteously over the nation of Israel. But even if just on hearing these words alone, we cannot conclude that she, she concludes that this is her master or her Lord or that this is the rightful heir of David. This has to be that she has, she has heard these words in faith. There has been a seed planted in her heart that feeds her to be able to confess in the object of her deliverance. And so as we've noted, the tone of faith, we need to ask, what is the content of our confession? Or in other words, what, or more accurately, who is the object of your faith? One way to examine this is to think about our addresses to God. Do you ascribe to him the title of Lord? Do you ascribe to him the title of, of master? Does our posture denote that we have submitted to him as our Lord? 
And when we think on the Lord Jesus, do we know the centrality of his role as the righteous king of the people that God is his promise to rescue? Or in actuality, in our actions, do we find ourselves honoring him with lip service and and yet trying to exercise kingship over any kind of dominion that we can control in our lives? In a, in a moment of... of of critical significance in your life, and know that I'm speaking to myself here as well, it's your inclination to clamor for control. Or do you understand that Christ is the sovereign in whom we are to submit? If this is you, I encourage you, remember again the tone of faith. It's a humble and contrite heart. And look again outside of yourself to the object of your faith, to the one in whom you believe, the one who is merciful, the one who is slow to anger, the one who is abounding in steadfast love, and begin this cycle again of faith, of repentance and believing and placing our faith outside of ourselves in the object of deliverance. But what happens when you don't hear a word? When nothing comes in response to your desperate cry of mercy. That's what we see happens here in verse 23. But he didn't answer her a word. I think Calvin's words on this text are again helpful. He says, in this way, the Lord often acts towards those who believe in him. He speaks to them and yet he is silent. Relying on the testimonies of scripture where they hear him speaking to them, They firmly believe that he will be gracious to them, and yet he doesn't immediately reply to their wishes and prayers, but on the contrary, seems as if he didn't hear. I wonder if you know that experience as well. Times where it seems as if the Lord isn't responding. But I want to encourage you that in our text, silence is not an indication of neglect. Silence is actually the evidence of orchestration. You might be able to guess that I enjoy music. Uh, as I've said before, I've got the privilege of, in assisting and leading in song most Sundays. Um, I'm not an expert. I don't have the training that I know a lot of you have in it, but I, I do consider myself a student of music, um, and I like to observe the things that happen in it. Uh, and, and one thing that I've always found uh, simultaneously perplexing and also extremely powerful uh, in music is, is the silence. It's actually the moments when nothing is being played, the, the intentional pauses or the intentional rests in the music. It's actually amazing how a busy piece of music that can cluster all sorts of notes and chords together so that you actually might be overwhelmed with what you're hearing and then in a moment of silence give you just the amount of time that you need to comprehend the message being conveyed. It can also be used, silence within music, as a powerful tool to elicit emotion. When the trajectory of a song is leading you, whether in a high or in a low, in a particular direction emotionally, a pause can be the exact thing needed to allow you to linger in a moment that's actually being created. And I think we can say that Jesus' silence in our text is serving all of these purposes here, 
But most poignantly, I think he is doing what I found classical pieces of music do really well, and that is to move from one moment to the next, to highlight the thing that's coming up. Jesus doesn't answer her a word, not because he doesn't hear her. Text makes that clear. Everyone hears her. Everyone's getting annoyed. Her overwhelming tone of desperation is the cluster of notes that's being played. Now, the purpose behind the silence is that a moment is coming that will be crystallized in their experience by this silence. It's as if, by the way, that Jesus is conducting the symphony. Everyone is waiting to hear what he's going to say next. And so we might think the disciples come to him and say, Lord, get this woman out of here. She has no right to be chasing us down like this. We're trying to help you get some rest. You've been hard at it, doing work for, for a long time so that you can fulfill your mission. And we don't have time for these Gentile dogs. And so Jesus answers to them with his mission. I came only for the lost sheep of Israel. Yeah, they, they say, we know, that's, we're aware that we're trying to help you do that. And then as, as they're defending themselves, they're interrupted by the woman's worship. She kneels down at his feet and she says, Lord, help me. So looking at her and, and looking at the disciples where everyone can hear, he tells her, it isn't right to take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. Now, this is a hard saying. Why would he say this? Something we should know before we hear her amazing response to Jesus' comments here is that it's actually a very common thing during this time for Gentiles to be referred to as dogs. Uh, it doesn't make it any less palpable. It doesn't make it any less um, pleasant. It's a harsh term that Gentiles referred to as dogs. Actually, in the Jewish mind, dogs were the epitome of being unclean. They, they had no homes. They ate garbage. They were scavengers. But what Jesus does here is he redefines the perceptions of everyone who listens because the word he uses for dog is actually not the common form of the word dog for a street dog. It's actually denotes what would be a house pet. It seems like a subtle change in us, but we, we see when we understand this that he changes the perception so slightly that he is insinuating to this woman that, this is, that he's intending a dog that is chosen to belong and to reside in the home of a family. And so at one and the same time, he's affirming his mission to God's people, the house of Israel, children by blood, and also teaching them that this, this house isn't defined by those who consider themselves ritually clean. No, the, the, the house is defined, the requirement of belonging to the house is the mercy of its master. And she knows this because her reply, she says, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. There's two things I want to ask as we look at her response of great faith. The first is when you hear silence in your fellowship with the Lord, do you presume that the music isn't playing? 
If you, if you were to go to a symphony where you're brought to a place of silence within the music, your first inclination isn't likely going to be that the conductor has just all of a sudden forgot or stopped caring about the piece of music that he's presenting to you. Now that you'll know, he intends for you to hear the beauty of the movement that's coming next. And so I ask, likewise, are you tuning your ears to hear, even in those moments, especially in those moments of silence, for what will be coming, and trusting that it will in the appointed time? The second thing I want us to note about her response of faith is, are you resolute, as we see she is in this passage, that the blessings of God are yours based only on the mercy of the master alone. She had no delusion. She knew who she was. She knew that according to rightful inheritance, she wasn't entitled to any. But she also knew this, that the sufficiency and the overflowing surplus of the mercy of Jesus, the bread of life himself, was abundant enough for even a dog like her. So are you resolute, not in yourself, but in the overflowing, abundant mercy of Jesus? Last thing I want us to see in our text today, this pericope here at the end, verses 29 through 31. It's wonderful, miraculous works. This is Jesus went on from there. He sat down on a mountain. Great crowds came to them, and then he began to heal the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute. And this is surely scientifically inexplicable acts of the supernatural work of the Creator. It's on full display. And it's undoubtedly a fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah chapter 29, chapter 35 of the book of Isaiah, where he writes about the redemption for the ransomed who are dispersed throughout the land. And he says these exact things will happen when the deliverer comes. Things like sight being given to the blind, working legs to those who are lame, active vocal cords to those who are mute. These things are happening miraculously. And they can surely be contrasted with the scenes earlier in Matthew where certain Judean cities were denounced for their unrepentance. In fact, we read this, and I find it particularly telling in chapter 11 of Matthew. He says, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, the passage here, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. You see, these, these denounced cities, Bethsaida, experienced the same works of, of miracles that the towns of Tyre and Sidon experienced. So what we must not see this as, as the result of faith is that this faith produces these miracles. No, on the, on the contrary, these signs and wonders are actually temporary things miraculous yet still temporary the blessing given to the lame was that he could walk but he was still walking in a body that would eventually pass away the blessing the blessing given to the blind is that he would 
see, but one day his eyes would shut permanently. The blessing given to the mute was a loosened tongue that we see he, he shouts and sings the praise of God with, but one day his voice would never be heard again. Now the point in these miraculous works we find in the conclusion of our text in verse 31. We see so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, when they saw the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and these unclean people in an unclean land glorified the God of Israel. Here's the point. There, there for us, there is something so much greater to which the blessings of faith in Christ point to. The result of faith is not merely a healthy body. The result of faith is merely an orderly life or justice in a matter that seems unjust or reconciliation in a relationship that's estranged. All of these good things, these desperate cries that we plea out to the Lord for and that he grants to his people out of the abundance of his mercy. But it isn't the result of faith. The result of faith is this, that there is a hope to which these things point. A permanent day where sickness, sadness, injustice, even death itself will be no more. The result of faith is enabled acknowledgement that there is a kingdom that is broken into this time and space that is wholly unlike the kingdom we would ever set up for ourselves. And we look forward to the day in hope where we will partake not merely of just the blessings, not merely of just the crumbs that fall from the master's table, but where we will be invited as guests to the feast he has prepared. That's what we celebrate each Sunday as we, we take the Lord's Supper and as we think about that as we turn to it. This is the feast that we have in view. That the body of Christ, which is the bread of life itself, was given for you that you might glorify him. So would you take it with me today in great faith together? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word and we thank you for the Savior contained in it. We thank you for your abundant mercy and for the permanent day to which we long for and hope in which we cry, come Lord Jesus. We pray that in between then and now that we will look forward in great faith. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.